And for the adults who remain, if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, we will study together the second half of the third chapter of Exodus. As you've, for those of you who've been with us, you realize that we've been working through the book of Exodus and we're essentially just beginning our journey. We have arrived this this morning at the second half of chapter 3. We'll read this passage together, we'll get some context, and then we'll get moving. Beginning in verse 11. Just a refresher, the the Lord has appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The bush is burning, but the flames are going up, but the bush is not being consumed. The picture of a bush that, of a fire that doesn't need fuel to burn, is emblematic of the name that we're about to discuss. It's a timeless name. It's a name that exists in and of itself and always ever will. And so the picture that Moses saw reinforced the name that he's about to gather further insight about. So let's pick up our reading in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go uh, to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty-handed, or you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. 
so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Let's pray. Father, would you give us grace and strength to understand what you have for us this morning in this passage? I pray that we would consider what your name means and how it is supposed to propel us into further service and commitment to you. May we do as you've, not in so many words, but essentially instructed Moses to meditate what it means to have a God that always has been and always will be. A God that is a perfect fit for every situation that we might face. I pray that we would further in our own hearts and minds the truth that you conveyed to Moses here in Exodus 3. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin the sermon today by quoting for you a song, and a few of you might even recognize this song. It goes like this. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't be afraid of the dark. At the end of the storm, there's a golden sky and the sweet silver song of a lark. Walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, for your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on, with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk alone. That song was written in 1945 as a part of a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical or production. It was sung to a young widow who'd recently lost her husband in a tragic accident. The song didn't get much play uh, initially in 1945, but in 1967, uh, I'm sorry, in 1963, a British band called Gary and the Pacemakers took it up. And once Gary and the Pacemakers took it up, it became a smashing success, believe it or not. Between the years 1963 and 1965, that's a long stretch of time, it was the number one song on all the billboard charts in the, in the United Kingdom, Australia, Ireland, and New Zealand. In 1967, Elvis Presley repackaged it as a gospel song and began singing it here in the United States. But it must be admitted, it didn't take off here in the States quite as well as it did in England. The song is quite well known today, actually, as the song that the fans of the soccer team Liverpool sing before their games. It's not the sort of song that you would expect to hear in America. It's not a hype-up song. It's actually got kind of a ponderous note as it moves forward and it it crescendos that you'll never walk alone. And these fans serenade their soccer heroes to push forward because these fans have their backs. It's a song that's sung at many Australian sporting events as sort of a national anthem before their team takes the field. Why is it that a song like this gets such forward momentum in a culture? Well, I think what happens is occasionally, occasionally, a song or a poem catches momentum because it echoes a need that God has already put in our hearts. 
person who wrote this song was not in all likelihood thinking, this sounds a whole lot like Bible. What likely happened is that there was a yearning in his or her heart that caused him or her to pen words that would be a comfort and unwittingly knowing that the God of the ages has already made such promises in even greater degree. What am I saying? This song is an echo. It's a ripple across the lake of a pebble being thrown in of what God has already put in the heart and what God has already promised. Because of that, it resonates with people because it's addressing a need that God already knows is there. I have a problem. I printed the wrong sermon for today. No, I didn't. I have it. I have no idea what's been happening with the printer and my PowerPoints. We'll have to get Nathan to address this. We changed printers. It's not Nathan's fault. I'm not, I don't know what's happening. We changed printers, and when I print it, it, it prints something different than what I thought I printed. I'll, I'll explain later. But I have it in front of me. Praise the Lord. Okay. I have the wrong title is up there. The title is You'll Never Walk Alone. It's possible that I just forgot to put that in. Let's just go to the review slide and forget this whole thing ever happened. Okay? I had you turn to Genesis chapter 3, or uh, Exodus chapter 3. Just as a quick recap, Israel has been in Egypt now for 400 years, and they've been enslaved, and it's been a really awful experience for them. The writer goes to great pains to show just how much suffering they've been enduring as slaves at the hands of the Egyptians. It's clear when we come to Exodus chapter 2 that there's something special about this boy Moses. He's born in unusual circumstances. He's, he's saved from the Nile River, this object that was meant to kill him. He's raised in the house of Pharaoh. He knows there's something about his life where it seems that he knows. And he becomes a zealot for the cause and he moves forward into the nation to try to do something important and big for his people, but all it results in is murder. And he has to run. He's been rejected by his people. He's been rejected by his adoptive people. And so he goes to the wilderness far away, about as far away as a person could get and still be in that region of the world. And he finds a wife and a father-in-law that he loves and respects, and he lives as a resident alien in a place called Midian. Now, it's unfair to say that he settled down in Midian because he was a, a nomad sheep herder. He went where the grass grew. He would go over here, take his sheep over there, take his father's livestock over there. He was not a wealthy man. He's still tending his father-in-law's business when we meet him at the age of 80. He hasn't much advanced in this world the way we would reckon it to be so. And as we 
move forward, we begin to see that for 40 years, he's been talking to himself a lot. In fact, I think if we were to put it in 21st century jargon, we would say that Moses was engaging in a lot of negative self-talk. And he began listening to it. And so in Exodus 3, the Lord appears to him in this burning bush, as we talked about before. And God said, I'm sending you. God commissions him. I'm sending you to the children of Israel to deliver them. And one might think that Moses would be overjoyed. Oh, finally, I get to redeem my life. I get to do the great important thing I was raised to do, the thing I thought I would do. And all these years are not gone. They're not wasted. They'll be redeemed. And here I have an opportunity to do something marvelous for the Lord. That would be in an ideal world, I suppose. But as I said, Moses was engaging in all this negative self-talk. And now, Moses is going to give five objections to the Lord. Five of them. And they're all very well rehearsed. They range from their beginning with what is appropriate humility to at the end being an out-and-out stubborn refusal to go. And God is patient with him all along until the very last one it says that the Lord's anger was kindled against him. Because something had changed by the fifth time Moses recounts his reason not to. Something had changed from uncertainty to rebellion. And we will track over the next few weeks how Moses starts humble and progresses to rebellious and how God in each case overwhelms these excuses or reasons. And the thing I'd like to point out to you in all five of these, Moses is right. And God says, but I'm still sending you. (laughs) Very often, when God calls us to a task, we're well aware of our shortcomings for that task. And we look at it and realize and tell the Lord, this is the reason I can't do it. And God says, no, I, yes, you do have shortcomings in that area. I will not disagree with that. And I'm still sending you. And I still want you to do this. And that's where God and Moses are at. So what we're going to do is cover the first two of these five objections today. There's a bit of a pattern that takes place. Moses offers this objection, and the objection is not exactly clear to us what he's objecting to on his first go-round. Okay, sometimes in language, we... There are nuances in language that are hard to come by if you're just jumping in. Let me give a very brief example. I spent a summer in the Dominican Republic. Um, I went with pretty good Spanish, and my Spanish was developing as I was there. At one point, we were working outside, and a man, a, a Dominican fella, his name was Rafa, he ran over a nail with the wheelbarrow, and the, the tire on the wheelbarrow broke. Well, In that culture, 
you don't admit in so many words, I, I broke the tire. Steve knows. Steve's a fluent Spanish speaker, and he, he knows this. I didn't know it at the time. What you say is something passive. You say, the tire ruptured. And I said, well, who ruptured the tire? And the person who ruptured it said, well, it ruptured. And that's his way of saying it was me. But like the dumb and forward American that I am, I went, yeah, I know it's broken. Who broke it? And finally, Rafa started waving his hands. He goes, yo, yo. That's I in Spanish. It was me. And then I was rebuked by the local pastor for putting a man like Rafa in such a position. I wasn't trying to rebuke Rafa. I, it, was, it, was a, it was a language barrier, a culture barrier. And once we got that understood, I felt terrible for having put Rafa in that position. Something similar in each of these cases is happening where we kind of have to work through culture and language to get to the bottom of it, and I, I hope you'll bear with me as we do that. So Moses will give this reason, and then God says yes, and. And God meets it. God meets it. And we'll follow that pattern along. So what's the first reason Moses gives that he should not be the one to go? What is it? What does he say? He says in verse 3, chapter 3, verse 11, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now this sounds perfectly humble and correct. Who is Moses? You know, the Levites, he was born of Levites, but the Levites had not yet been established as the priestly class. Moses is saying to himself, I'm not even the firstborn child of somebody important. I I haven't been there in 40 years. When I did try to go there, the people rejected me. Who am I? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Who am I? I'm not the man for this job. Now, some commentators will tell you that what Moses is doing here is actually a sort of polite way of accepting a commission. And they'll point to uh, 1 Samuel 18 or 2 Samuel 7. In each case, God has commissioned David, and David says, who am I that you should do this? And they say, see, that's just a polite way of accepting a commission. The way I take that is actually this was a man, David, who was well-versed in what Moses had said. And David was imitating or applying what was likely a humble, self-effacing attitude that was, quite frankly, realistic about his situation. Moses, God, I tried and I wasn't the man. God, I'm not a person of great birth or stature. God, look at me. I'm 80 years old. I'm not qualified for this. This is appropriate humility and self-awareness. It's an appropriate appreciation of the realities that he would face. And God responds to this. In verse 12, he says, number one, God doesn't disagree with him. God doesn't say, oh, actually, Moses, you really are the guy. Moses, look at you. You're a tall, strapping man for an 80-year-old. You could wrestle a bear right now. 
Oh, Moses, no, 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 those people love you. They've been waiting. No, he doesn't puff them up like that. He doesn't disagree. He says, yes, but there's something very different from this time to the last. And the decisive element is this, verse 12. I will be with you. I will be with you. And this shall be a sign for you that I, I myself have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God promises his presence with Moses. He promises that he will be there with Moses. And it's not Moses that's doing the work. Moses is merely the vessel through which God will perform these great and mighty wonders. Moses has a commission from God. And it's God who will perform these things. And then God, to reinforce Moses' attitude, gives him a sign. This, the word sign is an important Hebrew word. It, it's used frequently in the Old Testament as a marker, a signpost, something that Christians are to look to. Now here's the thing about this particular signpost. He puts it three months out into the future. He says, I'm going to give you a sign to assure you that I'm with you. Three months from now, you and the entire nation of Israel will worship me on this mountain. Now, number one, that is a preposterous promise unless God can actually pull it off. As we will find out, the people of Israel represent a huge economic boom to the nation of Egypt. Nobody, Pharaoh included, wants them to go anywhere. They provide far too much labor, far too many services. They're far too important for the economy. And what's more, when rich people own stuff, they get really stingy about it. And Pharaoh is a rich man who owns these people, and he ain't letting them go. This is preposterous. Now, you might ask the question, how is this a sign when it's three months out into the future and you won't know that it's a sign until after it happens? How does that help Moses right now? Well, first of all, God is going to give him some more immediate signs that we'll see here in just a moment. So God isn't going to leave him in the immediate, like in the next week or two, God isn't going to just leave him without some affirmations. Furthermore, what God wants this sign to do is to be a moment of worship for the people of Israel that God did exactly what he said he would do. And then he wanted it to be a moment of worship looking backward. And he wanted that sign to be a monument for faith steps moving forward. Because once they got to the mountain, that was the beginning of their journey. They still had to go conquer an entire land. Many more difficulties lay ahead of them. And they needed the reinforcement that God would do exactly as he says. And so that's what this sign was supposed to be for. 
Moses says, who am I? I? I don't think I'm the man for the job. I don't think I'm qualified. I don't think the people of Israel will hear me. And God said, well, you're right. <laughs> but I'm going to be with you this time. And there's coming a day when you and a million people are going to stand where you're standing right now. And they're going to worship me. And then you'll know for sure that I did it. Moses hears that and comes up with a second thought. It's this. He says, then Moses, verse 13, says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What does Moses mean when he says this? What does it mean when he says this? Number one, it's almost certain that the people of Israel already knew the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh, it's the capital L, capital O-R-D that we talked about last time. It's mentioned in the Bible as early as, early as the second chapter of Genesis. It's used all throughout the book of Genesis. It was the promise. Yahweh made the promise to Joseph to bring his bones back to the promised land and Jacob and so forth. This name is extremely common and all the people there knew it. So what we can conclude is that it's not that these people were ignorant as to the name. Number two, he's not asking for a code word. Like a password. Like, what have you given these people a secret code that you're now giving me, and when I tell them, those two will match and you'll know? That's not what Moses is saying either. There are actually two keys to understanding this question that kind of help us unravel it a little bit. The first one is this, that word, what? What, what shall I tell them your name is? This, is? this is a question, the question of what, is not a question of identity, but a question of quality. Let me give an example. Imagine somebody that you hardly know comes up to you with a, a sack, and they say, I have a present for you. And in the sack is an envelope, and you open it up, and it's cash. And you don't know exactly how much is there because there's far too much to count, but it turns out there's $20,000 in $100 bills in front of you in this envelope. And you take it out, and you look at the person who just gave it to you and say, what is this? You know very well what it is. It's money. What are you really asking? What are your motives? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? What is this for? In other words, by asking what is this, you're asking a whole bunch of other questions even though you know exactly what it is. Does that make sense? So, 
Moses is saying, if they ask me, what is your name? They're not trying to identify you. They're not trying to get what is your name specifically. What they're trying to identify is what qualities, what type of God are you? What are you about? The other key to this understanding this question is that word name. What is your name? Now, we also have to keep in mind that in this culture, your name, and we understand this, your name is only as good as your word. Well, what do we mean? My name, Greg, means Greg no matter what my word is. No, no, no. My reputation is only as good as my word. And it's the same in Hebrew. Name and reputation go hand in glove. They're synonyms. And so what Moses is saying is this. When I go to them and say, the I am has met with me, and I tell them, the I am has sent me to deliver you, they're going to ask me, what is it about the I am? What is it about his reputation? What is it about his name that would give us some sort of confidence that he can pull off this incredibly unlikely miracle? How do we know we can trust him? How do we know he's really going to do it this time? And Moses kindly needles the Lord on this point. He says, I'm going to tell them the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of their fathers. And then you can fill in a little parenthesis who has seemingly been absent these 400 years. And now he arrives on the scene? What am I supposed to say to them about your reputation? What does your name speak into this situation when they ask? And if we understand the question that way, it begins to explain to us why God answers the way he does. Let's look at God's answer. God gives a two-part response. The first thing he does is he gives an obvious answer, and then he gives four signs. He doesn't call them signs, but they're signs to be sure. And these are those more immediate signs I was telling you about before. The first thing that God says to Moses, he says, well, what shall you say to them? God said to them, tell them, I am who I am. God uses a different um, structure of the name than he uses anywhere else in the scripture. And a lot of commentators are perplexed by this. And I'll admit, it's not totally straightforward. Why? I think what God is saying, you already know who I am. And furthermore, the emphasis here is on the I part of it. I will be whatever I need to be. I will be whoever I need to be. I will do whatever I need to do to get my people out of that land. Moses, God is inviting Moses and the people that he's talking to to meditate on the concept of the timeless one. He says, tell them the I am has sent you. This is my name forever. And thus, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
I haven't been anywhere. I told Abraham that they would be here for several generations and that they would suffer. I was timeless in my predicting that. I knew that. This was a fulfillment of my word to Abraham. I made promises to Jacob and to Joseph and to their fathers that I would pick them up and take them out. I, who know the end from the beginning, am here to execute my will because my will has never gotten out of my grasp. Sometimes I'll have people come to me and they'll say something to this effect. Man, I don't know that I've ever had anybody say it in exactly these words, but essentially they worry that they have somehow missed the will of God. Generally, it happens like this. God puts it on their hearts to do something. They get about halfway down that trail, and it all falls apart. (laughs) Nothing is how they thought it would be. The situation gets out of hand. They're very confused, and they start looking around, and they look... They go back to the point that they began this journey and they ask themselves, did I miss the will of God? Did I somehow mistake that and put myself in a position where now God is not present? Whenever I hear that, I always have one response you could no more prevent the will of God happening in your life than you could prevent the sun from coming up tomorrow. You haven't missed anything. If God had told you at the beginning, hey, I'm going to put you in a situation where the bottom falls out of it and you're going to be really discouraged, how many of you would raise your hands and sign up for that? God says, I want you to go that way. He doesn't promise anything beyond that first step. He promises he'll be there. He promises his grace will be sufficient. He promises that he will give you everything you need to complete that task. He promises that you will be insufficient for it, but he will be. You didn't miss God's will. You're actually perfectly there in the center of it, most likely. I say most likely, I mean most certainly. Well, God says, I want you to think about my name and how I saw, I see the end from the beginning. How I'm the architect of this whole thing. And how you now are on the receiving end of the culmination of many years of patience and grace, and a commitment to keep my word. I will do this. And everything about my name and my reputation tells you that I will. That's what God is saying when he reviews the meaning of his name. And then God goes on to give four signs. He says, number one, Moses, I want you to go to the elders of Israel. There were 
civilian, civil leaders of Israel. Pharaoh likely employed them. And I want you to go to them, and I want you to tell them that the God of their fathers has appeared to them, and he's going to deliver them from their hands. And they'll believe you. Now, that in itself is a mini miracle. (laughs) Moses goes, and I'm sure, I am sure, he was convinced they were going to kick him out again, that they weren't going to hear him. Imagine a preacher in our day and age who goes around preaching the gospel. He goes to a church of 100 people, or goes to a gathering of 100 people. He preaches the gospel, and all 100 people raise their hands and say, yes, I would like to accept that. The preacher would go, um... Let me explain that again to make sure you understand what I'm saying. Well, they understood and they accepted. The second sign God gives. He says, Pharaoh will not release you. Now, God's intention is to bring them out permanently. But he needs the people of Israel to see that there's no life for them back in Egypt. And so, instead of saying to Pharaoh... I want you to release them forever. He actually gives Pharaoh a legitimate opportunity, and God means it. It's a true offer, but Yahweh, the timeless one, knows what's going to happen. And the offer is very simple let the people go for three days. Let them go three days, long weekend. Some of you guys get Friday, Saturday, and Sunday off. That's it. And Pharaoh won't even do that. He won't let even the slightest little slip out of his hand of these people. And they need to see how unreasonable and awful Pharaoh's being. Not even three days. And that's right. God says, I will compel him. Well, we're going to read about those in detail. The plagues of Egypt. God will compel him. And God systematically attacks Pharaoh's pantheon. And then God says, and you will plunder the Egyptians. And he makes a special promise here. He says, your ladies will plunder the Egyptians. The Egyptians will willingly give your women anything they want. Now there's a twofold irony here. God is trying to demonstrate to the Israelites that he's the one that did this. It wasn't by their might or power. For even ladies who were not military folk would perform a military action of plundering. But secondly, and most importantly, this is ironic, because it was the ladies who suffered the most under the hand of Pharaoh. They were the ones who had to throw their infant children into the Nile. They were the ones who were supposed to put the males to death. They were the ones who systematically rose up against Pharaoh and refused to obey. They were the ones who fearlessly fought against this program of death. And so God says, you know, Pharaoh was okay with keeping the ladies alive. That's fine. They're going to take all your stuff. And that's what happened, as we'll find out. Let's draw three lessons from this passage. 
before wrapping up for the morning? Lesson number one, meditating on the eternality of God provides abundant comfort in troubling times. Meditating on the eternality of God provides abundant comfort in troubling times. I have up here Psalm 41, especially verse 13. You might want to read that psalm. At the beginning of the psalm, David is lamenting. The King David, David who is writing about 700 years after this event, his life has been endangered, and it genuinely was in danger. David was a fighting man. He was a soldier, accustomed to warfare and close combat. He was a man who was on the run and faced threats all his life. And he had several close calls. And David, the man of arms, understood what it was to have his life in danger. And he says that when my very life was in danger... I meditated on how God is from everlasting to everlasting. And when trials were their worst, what comforted me the most is that God knows the end from the beginning. That God is utterly timeless. He is not bound by time. He sees the end of the story. That God is the architect of all of this. I can entrust myself to him because of how big and marvelous he is. Sometimes events happen and they require an immediate flurry of action, don't they? Ladies, when your children are endangered, imagine your toddler in a parking lot and there's a car reversing and the reversing car doesn't see your toddler and your toddler doesn't see them. Is that the time to meditate on the fact that God is everlasting? <laughs> no, you shout, you scream, you yell, you take action, but in the aftermath, that is going to catch up to you and your hands are going to shake. You'll feel very vulnerable. That's when you meditate on God being everlasting. And it creates worship in your heart. Number two. Meditating on the abiding presence of God wards off sins that beset us. We're told here to meditate on the fact that God will always be with us. Jesus promises the New Testament church, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes I fear that as Christians, we, 21st century Christians, the, the sheer magnitude of that promise, the sheer audacity of it, wears away. We don't understand the significance of it. But when you read through the pages of the New Testament, Paul and Peter, the writer of Hebrews, are constantly going back to it over and again. It meant so much to them that Jesus would never leave them nor forsake them. And I fear that we forfeit the comfort of that promise simply by not thinking about it enough. And I picked this verse up here, Hebrews 13.5, because it's sort of an unexpected one. He says, keep yourselves free from the love of money. That's Paul, I'm sorry, in 1 Timothy 6. He says, 
Put away covetousness out of your hearts. For the Lord said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How many of you would have associated covetousness with that promise? I don't think I would have unless I read it. But allowing God's presence, his abiding presence with you, wards off the desire to grasp and take when we shouldn't because Jesus has us. He's with us. He's not going to forsake us. Therefore, we don't have to grasp and take. We can live life with open hands. Number three, and last, meditating on the fulfilled word of God grants us courage and faith to move ahead. I put up here Ezra chapter 1 because it's a great example. It begins when God fulfilled his word and the people of Judah were commanded, if they wanted to, to go back home. It set off a huge series of work projects. They had to rebuild the temple. They had to rebuild the wall. They had to deal with old sins that were besetting them. There was a whole lot of work to do moving forward. And it all began with God kept his word. And what God wants us to do is look back in his scripture and see how he met his word to the letter. And then he wants us to look into our lives and see all those points where God met us in our need and did not leave us, and did not forsake us. And use that as fuel for faith moving forward, because we have great and growing confidence that God will not abandon us in our need. Far more than that, God will shower us with blessings to meet our needs at exactly the right time and place, in such a way that's designed, that's designed to optimize faith in us. There are no accidents. And God is encouraging us to meditate on his fulfilled word, on his abiding presence, and on the meaning of that great name. Let's pray. Father, you are a great king, a great God who keeps his word, who abides with us, who promises grace. May we take the time necessary to reflect on that goodness, knowing that these are the building blocks of a life well lived. These are the building blocks of a life that's characterized by faith. So help us to build our foundation on the knowledge of your name and character and abiding presence. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to sing Jesus, thank you. Let me just make note that if you if you're having a particular struggle and you need some help, one of God's kindnesses to us to help us reflect on those truths is other Christians. And uh, if you are in need of that, if you could just reach out to somebody else, or I know any of the pastors would love to connect with you about that. Uh, we 
one of the ministries we have to each other is to help each other focus on those truths about God, especially during hard times. Let's stand, though, and sing, Jesus, thank you. The mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend. Thank you so much for your attendance today. God bless. You are dismissed.